This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, we know there's tons of housing scheduled to come into the Vancouver market in the next few years. But who's going to buy it? We take a look at alternatives to care home living and hear about something called co-housing. And it's been two months since family court was put on pause and licensing for new drivers was suspended. So when are those kinds of crucial services going to return? That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. There is no place in Canada for guns specifically designed to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. That is why uh, we are uh, moving forward with a ban on assault style, uh, military-style assault weapons. Okay, so that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a couple of weeks ago after that mass shooting in Port Peak, Nova Scotia. An overwhelming majority of Canadians that have been polled by Ipsos Public Affairs agree with that ban. Although some do have a few concerns about it. So let's find out about that. Joining us now is the Ipsos CEO, Daryl Bricker. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Simi. Now, when you say overwhelming majority, what kind of number are we talking about here? 82%. Might as well be 100. Yeah, that's um, a lot. That's, yeah, you don't get 82% agreement on much these days. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a really strong number. And I think, you know, the language that, uh, um, that the Prime Minister chose to use and the government chose to use by focusing on military-style assault weapons uh, really does um, cut through any of the general debate that people might have about guns and really, uh, I would say, consolidate support for one specific initiative here, and that would be banning that type of gun. Right. So their message, it sounds like, is resonating with people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, particularly given some of the events that have happened, but also when you really take a look at who uh, um, Canadians are becoming, we're basically becoming an urban species. And, and, and when you're that type of a population, you really have to wonder why it is that anybody would need a weapon that would be described as that. Now, you said there's also... that would be described as that. Right. There's also concerns, though, potentially. Where were those concerns and what were they about? Oh, they'd be in places like, uh, for example, Alberta and uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where, you know, slightly more rural cultures uh, in which uh, hunting is probably more of a, a popular sport. Generally speaking, I would say any places outside of urban and suburban areas where hunting and target shooting and other things where firearms are seen as more of a positive um, a bit of a, a concern about that, not necessarily about military-style assault weapons as described by the Prime Minister, but more in terms of uh, what, what, what's coming next, what could potentially be coming next. Right, so they're worried about government overreaching. Right, so this could be some form of intrusion. So we did ask people whether or not they thought that this was overreaching. About a third of them told us they were, even if they did support the military, the ban on military-style assault weapons. So it's not that there's a love for that particular uh, um, that particular style of firearm, uh, even among people who are supportive of firearms. They're, they don't need see a need for military-style assault weapons. Uh, what they do believe, though, is that there could potentially be an intrusion in other areas. Hmm, like what? Did they specify that? They're just like overall concerned. Uh, overall concerned. And I would say two things. One, um, they do have respect for people who are responsible owners of guns, for example, for uh, things like hunting, or if you're a farmer living in a rural area, you want to be able to have access to uh, to firearms to protect your livestock or whatever. So there'd be some sympathy to that argument. But uh, generally speaking, uh, just about anything that comes out of Ottawa these days for people in places like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta is greeted with a certain amount of suspicion. Mm-hmm. So they're always questioning motives that are going to be coming out of Ottawa. Okay, so where was the support for this strongest? Were you able to tell that? Quebec. And, really? and ever, yeah, ever since the, the Ecole Polytechnique back in the late 80s and that horrible incident that happened there, uh, people have been pretty strongly supportive of any, um, any uh, uh, types of bans on firearms, uh, particularly people who are living in places like Montreal and Quebec City. And they've also had other incidents that have taken place that have involved firearms uh, since then. But uh, it's, it's a pretty strong coalition. Uh, supporting um, restrictions on firearms in the province of Quebec. So what does this tell us then, do you think, Daryl, when it comes to the idea of gun control measures in Canada? Is the support there? Uh, Yeah, there's a fair amount of support for gun control measures, um, but there is also a pretty strong vocal, although minority, uh, coalition out there that's decisive politically in specific areas of the country, particularly rural 
Canada, I would say, uh, and in Western Canada, that um, governments have to be careful about if they're interested in winning and support in any of those ridings. And the other thing is that even though it's a minority population, they can be polit- politically potent in things, for example, like leadership conventions, which are small political mm-hmm. activities that where you know an organized group could come in and play a really important role. So um, still an issue that divides Canadians or parts of the political process in, in partisan terms. Right. So it sounds like timing here was everything, too. Doing, doing it right after port peak I would imagine people still had that memory fresh in their minds. They have that memory fresh in their minds, and the Liberals are, are, uh, are very, uh, very astute political operators. They also know that the Conservative Party is in the midst of a, of a, um, of, of a leadership race. They wanted to get uh, the, the two leaders of the Conservative Party, people who are leading the, uh, leading the race, on the record on something like this, I would suspect. Um, and uh, they know that uh, gun owners are uh, certainly a strong part of uh, the Conservative coalition and mm-hmm. uh, probably very active in this race. So, um, you know, timing probably related to the incident, but also an opportunity to uh, force the, uh, the people who are running for the Conservative leadership to express themselves publicly on what they think about guns. All right, Daryl, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO, talking about the latest polling that they've done having to do with whether or not Canadians support the federal government's ban on military-style assault weapons. And in a word, yes, they do. 82% said that they support that idea. And he said there are pockets of people who disagree with that, but very much, you know, regional and kind of in the minority uh, overall, though Canadians seem like they think this is a good idea. This is Mornings with Simi. Very interesting exchange that caught our attention yesterday in the House of Commons where the name Sam Cooper came up. Sam, of course, is an investigative journalist with Global News, and his work has helped shape government policy right across the country, uh, including a lot of it having to do with the money laundering scandal that continues to be dealt with in the Cullen Commission this week. But his most recent work is also attracting a lot of attention. We're going to talk about now because Sam Cooper is with us. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Now, your work was a topic yesterday in the House of Commons. What can you tell us about that? Right. Well, there, there's been a, some interesting um, pushback on a story I talked to your audience previously about, and that was uh, safety masks that uh, went to Canada, went to China from Canada. So uh, what happened in the House of Commons yesterday is uh, a Conservative MP questioned Liberal MP from Vancouver, Joyce Murray, about a WeChat group connected to uh, her her office in Vancouver, in which um, some individuals were soliciting crowdfunding donations for a lawsuit to to push back against the findings of uh, the PPE story. And essentially, those findings were China is involved in a really a lot of foreign in- interference in Canada, and it occurred during the COVID nineteen pandemic that uh, groups connected to China's government run out of consulates in Canada that have uh, sought to take over some Chinese-Canadian community groups with funding from Beijing, uh, enacted a campaign to to buy safety masks and send them back to China. And we need to be very clear. Our reporting has shown that most uh, Chinese-Canadians, Hong Kong-Canadians, had no part in this operation. However... And they, they find it really um, quite, quite against Canada's values, from what I understand. However, there was a very organized campaign in which groups run through something called China's United Front did send back many, many, many pieces of safety equipment to China. And that raised some concerns, broader concerns that we've continued to look at. Uh, to boil it down, the, the Conservative MP said, uh, Joyce Murray, are you going to offer an apology that your office is being used to crowdfund a lawsuit against uh, investigative journalism in Canada, looking at an important issue. Right. Now, I know you've done a lot of work, because we've talked to you many, many times, on things like money laundering and overseas connections. But your work, Sam, has it ever had a reaction like this before? In in a certain sense, in Vancouver, uh, as you know, Simi, I started as a, a newspaper reporter before coming to Global News. I was with the Vancouver province and the Vancouver Sun, and I was one of the reporters that really started to probe the the odd and strange uh, price movements in Vancouver real estate, mm-hmm. 
around 2012, 2013, I started to become aware of uh, a lot of evidence of corruption suspects. These would be officials from mainland China that had uh, uh, really, through underground methods, taken uh, the money of the mainland Chinese population and uh, absconded with it to Canada, invested in large-scale real estate. So when I started to look at this, absolutely, uh, I started to become aware of sort of organized pushback in which it was said, you can't point to uh, money coming from another country because that is... um, Really, they were alleging that's racist. And uh, people like Ian Yun at the South China Morning Post that were looking at the issue as well said, no, it's not about race. It's about money from a communist nation that's coming out through corruption and it's being laundered in Canada. And so uh, I became aware that uh, elite Vancouver uh, developers were pushing back on uh, the media. They were pushing back on editors. They were trying to silence the reporting. We also saw uh, connections to social media campaigns, statements trying to silence these investigations. So uh, really, um, I have faced it before. uh, And really, certainly, it only makes me become aware that this is very important reporting it needs to be mm-hmm. done with great sensitivity, but it needs to be done uh, for the good of Canada's multicultural society and future. It really does. Does it make your job tougher, though? It, it's not easy when, uh, when people that uh, you could say that they're powerfully connected, wealthy, sometimes wealthy for the wrong reasons, uh, sometimes connected to organized crime, uh, push back against reporting that is trying that, that is aimed at exposing corruption. So, uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, it does become draining at certain points when when you could hear things like mm-hmm. let's try to tie up a reporter with mul- a multitude of lawsuits so that you know they can't do this reporting. But I, I feel that uh, Canadians and uh, media executives support this reporting because it's for Canada's good and it's for democracy. That's why we continue to do it. Well, we do support that. And listen, we look forward to hearing more. So Sam, thank you. Thanks, Cindy. This is Mornings with Cindy. 35 years. That is how long Gabby's Country Cabaret has been an iconic place to stop and have a good time in Langley. But sounds like they're going to be closing their doors for good and they are also blaming the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, we couldn't let that go without having a chat with the people behind Gabby's Country Cabaret about what made that place such a, a great place for the community. So Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to the owner just as he was heading outside to cut his lawn. I'm sorry to interrupt you cutting your lawn. <laughs> I know that uh, when you are out there mowing the grass, it's a time when you can really be alone with your thoughts. You know, for the next 45 minutes or so as you're cutting the grass, what do you imagine that you'll be thinking about? I got an acre and a half of lawn and I ride on and I, and you know what? This is kind of solitude right now, to be honest. And it's been overwhelming. It's been very emotional. It was a very extremely tough decision. You know, I I put my heart and soul into it. Like a lot of my employees have been, they've been just absolutely tremendous. The band that we've had play in there, uh, the relationship with them, they're phenomenal professionals. It, it's been great. It, it's been, it's been a, a great go. Not a million years did I ever think that this is how it was going to end. But there's no direction for us. They don't know what the issues will be and, and the rules and the everything else. And uh, with the distancing and, and everything else, it just, it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. The bills keep coming in and there's no money coming in. We're, we're shut down. Right, because if you're a restaurant right now, okay, you can open up with a few tables. But if you're uh, if you're a party bar, if you're a cabaret, you got to have a lot of people in there. You got to have people on the dance floor in order to make it a go. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it's the atmosphere, and that's why people come. People come to socialize. People come to just sit and listen to the band. People come to to dance on the floor. I mean, you know, for for. 20 years now, probably for the last 18 years, they have lineups every weekend. They just continually come. Uh, the, the support for them, uh, for the bands and, and for our staff and that, it, 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 it's been amazing. It, uh, it, it, it's been overwhelming. It, it, was, it was a very tough decision, but um, not knowing the end and not knowing what the end rules are going to be, uh, you know, the bills keep piling up and you keep paying them and 
you know, uh, there's no direction. There's no direction for us. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, there's so many people that have gone to your establishment over the past three decades. So many people have walked through those doors and have had a good night at your bar. What do you think that those people, when they look back on those memories, what do you think that they'll remember best? You know what? People ask me this all the time and they ask, you know, why did this go for generations of, of people and why did it? And I, I don't have the, the answer to it. I, I think we've provided them with, with good entertainment. We're just a very low-key place where you, you come as you are. You can be 19, you can be 55, you can be 60. You, you know, you fit in there. People come for, for to be entertained by music and musicians. I, you know, I really think that that's, that's it. People... People want to be entertained, and, and I think the vibe in there was, was always good. We, we had tremendous staff over the years that became friends with a lot of the customers, and I, I think we're seeing that now. And, you know, I'm getting emails. Our, our social media is blown up for people that I haven't heard from in, you know, 15 years, and they're devastated because their kids are coming, are coming there now. And it, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, no kidding, eh? Well, what's next for you? I mean, outside of cutting the lawn, after that, then what's next for you? <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to take a little break here. I'm going to take a deep breath, take a little break. And, you know, honestly, my heart has always been to move to a, a new venue down the road. And I think my heart's still there. We just, I've got to know, i got to know what direction this new world is going to be, as they say. Is there a place? Is there a place? I won't, I won't open up Gabby's. Uh, in any other format than what we have now. People enjoyed it. It was a good vibe. People really honestly enjoyed it. And, and you can see that in, in the, the outpouring on, on social media that people enjoyed the places. I, I, I've got to wait and see. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's sad. It, you know, it's sad. And, and not having any direction, I, I can't speak for everybody else, but, you know, when you have no income and the bills keep coming in, how long can you last? That is Steve Gallagher. He is the owner of Gabby's Country Cabaret in Langley, closing their doors after 35 years. But it sounds like there's a little bit of hope. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us now. Nikki, did you get that sense too? There's a little bit of hope there. Yeah, I think he is holding out that, you know, one day he might be able to reopen Gabby's once again. It's always such a bummer when we see these iconic bars close down because it's a place where so many people have memories. Either maybe you've been there once or maybe you've been there a thousand times. But when you drive past that location, you go, oh, yeah, that place, you know, it it becomes a place that you're used to seeing or even thinking back upon your time there. So I always find it really disappointing when these when these iconic bars, these iconic establishments where so many people have had so many good nights inevitably close as they seem to do. I know I was thinking about that listening to Steve Gallagher there and I was trying to think back to some of the old classic places like remember the town pump? Yes, the town pump. Right? Richards Um, on Richards? I was just going to say Richards on Richards. I still walk past that intersection, especially when I have friends who are new in town and don't remember it because now it's a condo building. Yes, isn't everything? uh, Down there Anytime recently, yeah, it's almost kind of strange to see. You go, okay, I think it was on this corner, but there's a condo here, and there's a condo over yeah. there where the brothel across the street used to be. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's funny looking back on those. Uh, Roosters is another oh, one that yeah. closed last year out by the the Pit River Bridge, which again was kind of a bummer. These places are the they're, they're the ones that kind of bring character to a community, right? They may not you don't dress up and go to these places on a Friday night, but they're the place where you go to have a good time, and they're kind of deeply embedded in the community for people who just want a chance to get out and go have some fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually uh, you know it's we could have a bigger conversation about that because those places become a part of our culture. Yes. Those are institutions that become a thread in the fabric of our local communities. And with the COVID-19 pandemic and certain businesses being able to reopen again, there's some that are more uh, fitting, such yeah. as, you know, a sit down restaurant. OK, well, we know now that those can reopen. But a nightclub, a nightclub that is still a part of our culture mm-hmm. may not be able to reopen because they rely on, as you heard Steve say, people in there dancing, sweating on each other, having a good time oh. listening to music. They're important to us. But these are the ones that may not survive right. because 
how do you reopen those places once again? I don't know. And the thing, the other thing about Gabby's, which made it so great, is that it was in Langley. And the fact that you didn't have to yeah. drive somewhere else, like you didn't have to drive into the city or somewhere else to like hear a band or, you know, hear some great music. So it will definitely be missed. I'm sure people have some memories out there. Nikki, we should ask if you want to share your Gabby's country cabaret memories with us, <laughs> you can email me. So let's try to keep it as G-rated as possible. Send me at cknw.com. <laughs> Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That is our Nikki Wrightmeyer. Yeah, you want to share your G-rated as much as you can memories with me, uh, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, a couple of years ago when the housing market here was hot, 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 there were an awful lot of pre-sales for buildings going on. Buildings that are scheduled to come online and now be occupied potentially in the next few years. So there is a lot of housing that is scheduled to come onto the market, but who's going to live in it or buy it for that matter if people decide they can no longer afford to keep them? Well, Vancouver City Councilor Colleen Hardwick has motioned, has put a motion on the table asking staff to reevaluate their target of 72,000 new units by 2027. A recent update on the city's 10-year plan indicated that about 30% of those units were already completed by the end of last year. So we want to talk more about these predictions for the market here and where we are at. Cameron McNeil joins us now, a partner at MLA Canada. They do a lot of work with real estate developers. Cameron, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, so we've talked up in the past about a lot of these buildings coming online. Do you think that's a concern in the next couple of years, especially with the way things are right now? Uh, you know, Simi, in the past, we've spoken about the long timelines in the real estate development industry. And of course, this COVID situation and uh, the interruption to our lives has, has been very dramatic and will probably have some, some lasting impacts. But behind all of that, we will continue to see immigration flowing into Canada and immigration flowing into the best parts of Canada. And so I'm not worried at all because I expect we're going to return quickly to a normalized immigration situation where we see anywhere between 40 and 50,000 new people flowing into BC on an annualized basis. That may, that may take 18 months to get back to those kind of numbers, but ultimately that is the underlying driver of the demand for real estate. So you think that that will be enough then to keep, the, there's all these dire predictions right now, right, of the market. That'll oh, be course, enough to yeah. pick it up, you think? I think it will. I think it will. I think that there's always, you know, I've, I've seen for the last 30 years such a spectrum of opinion around the real estate cycle from from uh, uh, doomsday uh, predictions to very optimistic. And uh, usually, uh, uh, if we take a medium to long-term view of things, um, usually in every case from medium to long-term view, um, we see that those immigration numbers are continuing to flow into the country and into the best parts. And that's ultimately what's driving and keeping the market up. And I've noticed as well, there's quite a few buildings, uh, you know, that I've seen that were kind of in the process of getting ready to be pre-sales. They haven't happened yet. Do you think those are going to go ahead? There's a lot of projects that still are in the process of, you know, making their way through the permitting part. Yeah, they will not go ahead unless the, uh, unless the market conditions are going to be able to support them. And those particular uh, projects, the the land was purchased at a price and the construction costs are not coming off or, or, or weakening. So the development community simply cannot bring those projects forward unless they can sell those homes at a particular price. And what's happening and what we're seeing now is everyone's just uh, in the development community is waiting and watching. And those projects will not come to market unless there's confidence that they will be um, uh, able to be sold, uh, not just at the price, but at the sales volumes that they need in order for those projects to manifest. So we're talking about the empty lots, though, like empty city blocks. Yes, you bet. Uh, that that will happen, uh, and we have to remember that the actual downturn in the market started in uh, 2018. In the May 2018, up until late 2019, the market was was very sluggish, and the development community did not bring a lot of projects forward in that window of time. So the projects that are completing now actually sold in 2016, 2017, and uh, in and there will be a wave of completions happening over the next 12 months. Um, However, after that, there is going to be um, quite a short um, uh, a shortfall of real estate. And in the beginning of this year, we started the market starting to recover uh, quite strongly. And of course, in the middle of of, uh, of March, that's when we got the second punch, and right. uh, and things really slowed off. So we are going to see quite a shortfall and shortage of supply when we look out 
just when things start to improve. Yeah. So you're saying just when things start to improve, we're going to see a shortage of supply because we're putting a halt on things now. Yes. And that's going to be four or five years out. That's when those real shortages are going to happen. It just feels like we're perpetuating the same cycle over and over, Cameron. It does. It does. And that's because these timelines are so long in our business. If we, if if we decide to uh, market a project today, we usually market that project for nine to 12 months before construction commences. And then if it's a, if it's a concrete building, which many of the buildings are in Vancouver, that could probably take uh, 24 to 36 months to build. And that whole timeline is four years out from the decision today to start selling before we're delivering keys to an end user. Lots of thing changes that are going to be happening. Cameron, thank you. You're very welcome. Cameron McNeil is a partner at MLA Canada. They do a lot of work with real estate developers, lots of analysis, lots of consulting. And as you can tell, it does sound like we're heading into another cycle of the same old here in BC. Lots of stuff coming online now, but stuff that was being planned at the height of how crazy our market was. Now we're tightening things up in a couple of years when we need more stuff. Of course, it's not going to be available again, meaning prices will probably shoot back up. This is Mornings with Simi. We've all been closely watching BC's COVID-19 numbers, and as they get lower and lower, and we seem to have really flattened that curve, the question now is, why? What did BC do that was different from other jurisdictions that have perhaps higher uh, higher rates of cases and higher mortality rates as well? Turns out keeping hospital beds available may have been instrumental in that high recovery rate for patients here in Metro Vancouver. Now, that's according to a new study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. So we wanted to get the details on this. So joining us is Dr. Donald Greasdale, lead author of the study. He works in intensive care at Vancouver General Hospital. Hospital. Dr. Greestell, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning to me. Thanks. Uh, it's nice to be with you. Well, tell me a bit about this study then. So how impressive is that rate of recovery here in Metro Vancouver? Well, you know, it's early on in the pandemic when we started to see cases come through, that was around the time that some of these other studies were published. And these other studies showed what, you know, what we would think are incredibly high mortality rates for patients. And so as we were preparing, I think all of us in the intensive care community and hospital community were quite anxious about this. And as patients started to come through, we started to, you know, we, we at the same time were building our capacity. And as patients started to come through, we, re- we realized that the vast majority of people actually did okay. And certainly uh, some people did uh, die from this, and that's uh, obviously tragic. Um, but most patients actually did recover and got better and got out of hospital. And with more and more publications coming out showing in other jurisdictions that the mortality was quite high, we thought it was very important to get our message out that, in fact, if you do have capacity to bring patients into hospital and into the intensive care unit, you're able to give them really high-quality team-based care because when you come to the ICU, it's, you know, it's it's a, it's a true team environment where we've got our doctors and nurses, our respiratory therapists, our pharmacists, nutritionists, uh, physiotherapists. So everyone comes together, right. and that we know that if we give that really good care, that people kind of have good outcomes. Right, because there has been a lot of discussion about that. Right, given that now when things are calmer uh, and getting more back to normal, we've got this huge backlog of people who normally might have been in those beds. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no doubt there's a huge secondary cost to all of this. And I think uh, certainly people right now are suffering because they haven't had access to uh, their operations and their procedures. And that's why now we're really singularly focused on trying to uh, get caught up, so to speak, and to build back uh, in a much better state than we were before. Okay. So did any other jurisdiction do it like this? Because that's been a huge issue, right? Enough ventilators, enough hospital beds. You know, it's 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 hard to know. I, you know, we, we always hear the stories from the other jurisdictions that have really been tragically overwhelmed. Um, certainly when you look uh, across the world, uh, certainly our experience, I think, is very similar to what we see in Australia and New Zealand. And interestingly, they provide very similar models of team-based care to what we do. So I think the importance was, um, and as I know uh, Anish Mitra sort of spoke yesterday about this, you know, the importance was, you know, I think early 
public health interventions, actually before spring break, the fact that the public responded incredibly well by social distancing, and that really kept our system from being overwhelmed. So we were able to build capacity. We were able to build these ICU beds and bring people in, whoever needed to be brought in. So really, we were never limited at all in terms of beds or uh, professionals to take care of, of those patients or equipment. You know, I find it so interesting as well, Dr. Greasel, because we've always heard that, oh, geez, the healthcare system is so big, so hard to make changes. You can't make it turn on a dime. It's just this huge, enormous ship. But I think what this has also shown us is that we can make changes absolutely when we need to. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. And it, the healthcare system is big and it is complex. Um, but that's been one of my biggest uh, take-home messages from this, that when we have a singular focus, we're really able to accomplish incredible things. And when we think about how our health authority has responded, you know, it's the first time I can think of that we're consistently around the table, all of us, uh, from public health to acute care to long-term care, everyone's coming together and really rallying around a single focus. And yes, you're right, the outcomes have been incredible because of that. So then what can we take from this moving forward? What we've learned here, how will this impact the system forward from now? Well, you know, it's much like you said, you know, we're all still around the same table and now we're uh, similarly, singularly focused on how do we start getting caught up to all those surgical procedures, ambulatory care, um, all those visits that need to get done now. So I think we've learned that we can operate better and we can operate more efficiently. And when all the voices are at the table, uh, we can do incredible things. So I think as we continue to build back and we continue to uh, make sure that we get these procedures done. We need to also maintain our vigilance. And I know our public health colleagues are, have done an incredible job of monitoring the community. And uh, I know myself and my wife, we listen to Dr. Henry whenever we can so that we uh, know what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just continue to monitor and uh, know that, honestly, if we do get more cases like we will, then we're going to be prepared to deal with them. That's another, I think, a good example of a side effect of this situation. You know, like, yes, it's been incredibly difficult, but do you agree that perhaps we've come out of this with more faith in the healthcare system? You know, there's always, absolutely, I've always, you know, as the inside, you know, inside the system, I've always had tremendous faith because our outcomes have always been incredibly good when you compare to other jurisdictions. There's definitely ways to improve and there's always opportunities that we can get better. And uh, so, yes, you know, we do have faith, but, you know, you can't sit back on that. Like there's a lots of room for opportunity to improve. And uh, I think we've identified those and we're really going to try to to keep working on that. But yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, a, I'm, Uh, take stock that we are taken care of, but by the same token, there's still lots of ways that we can get better. All right, Dr. Greistel, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for yours. That is Dr. Donald Greistel, lead author of this study. He works in intensive care at Vancouver General Hospital. The study took a look, and you'll find it in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. It took a look at how it was that here in BC, in Metro Vancouver in particular, we had this remarkably high recovery rate for patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. And they say the thing that was most instrumental in that was the fact that they cleared out the hospital beds. Remember, we always heard the health minister talking about this, is that they tried to keep you know as many hospital beds open as possible. Well, yes, now we have a backup for elective surgery that they're going to deal with. But in the meantime, it was a very successful way of combating uh, people who were hospitalized with COVID-19. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready to go back out for dinner? I'm starting to feel like, yes, I am. I've enjoyed the meal kits. I've gotten some meal kits from some of the city's best restaurants. They are fantastic. I've ordered delivery. I mean, you name it, I've done, you know, as many of you have, what you can to support the local kind of food service industry. But if you're ready to go back out for dinner, well, a lot of restaurants are opening up and doing that, including one of the city's best restaurants, St. Lawrence. They've reopened for dine-in service, but there is a bit of a catch you have to pay for your meal in advance. How does that work? Well, we have questions. Joining us now is JC Pare, the owner and executive chef. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. How does this work then? Like, do you have to look at the menu ahead of time to decide what you're eating, or is there a flat charge? You can look at the menu, which is called in French a table d'hôte. Uh, basically, it's a fixed price, but unlike the tasting menu, the customer can choose 
is starter, main course, and dessert. Okay, and why do this? Well, for many reasons. It's it's not a new system. I think it's a good change for what's gonna, what's happening right now. It's a good opportunity. Uh, what it allows us to do as a restaurant is to control or purchase a little bit better. Uh, so, like, minimize the waste and control our food costs, as well as we know how many staff we're going to need for service on that night. And most importantly, uh, we ensure that everybody's going to show up for the reservation. Uh, because you can imagine a restaurant that's at 50% capacity and you have a customer that don't show up for the reservation or cancel at the last minute. That would be uh, terrible for the business. That would be terrible. And also, I know how hard it is to get a reservation at your restaurant to begin with. (laughs) I mean, I've eaten there and it's wonderful, but it's not a huge space. So how are you dealing with the social distancing? Uh, Well, we're losing like after the dining room. Uh, There's no question about it. Um, We'll be doing takeout as well. So it's kind of a mix of uh, of both that will make up for for the loss of tables. we're able to put panels like uh, in between table if, if we didn't have the required uh, distance. Um, it's going to look a little bit different, but still, like um, I believe we'll have this 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 energy in the room, and uh, it will will look great. And what has the reaction been? Reservations coming in? Are people prepaying? Yeah, so far my my week is all booked, so people are responding very well. It's it's not very different than you know ordering takeout and paying for for your True. food for takeout or you know going to a great restaurant is also an experience. So if you go see a hockey game or you go see a music show, you have to buy tickets. So if you see it that way, um, you know it's it's nothing different. So if this catches on, can you see other restaurants perhaps trying this as well? Perhaps I mean I mean it works for us like you no know, for our concept and for Saint Lawrence and for our demographic like our customer um, they will you know embrace the change uh, so if I can't see other restaurant of our caliber like doing the same thing but you know it's it's a risky move and I was willing to to do it in those times I think change is good and it's working for us so far well we're glad to hear that thanks so much for your time on this this morning. Thank you so much. That is J.C. Parry, the owner and executive chef of one of Vancouver's best restaurants, St. Lawrence. This is Mornings with Simi. Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou will not be heading home as quickly as she'd hoped. A judge has dismissed her application, saying the criteria for double criminality can be met. That is Global News reporter Nadia Stewart yesterday, and the saga of the Meng Wanzhou case continues, as we know. And that was a major turning point with that court ruling, and it is one that China is not happy about, which they are already expressing. We're to talk more about this now. We are joined by Professor Gordon Holden, who's director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Professor, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So China is already saying that they don't like this. Is this kind of what we expected to happen since this ruling didn't go their way? Yes, because this is a case which has high profile in China. It's not a precise equivalent, but a little bit like a um, Ivanka Trump, perhaps. Um, not the daughter of the president, but the daughter of the founder of Huawei and a company that has very close ties to the Chinese hierarchy and probably... I'm confident that uh, her father knows Xi Jinping personally. So, yes, the reaction was strong. Uh, the Chinese may have hoped that this would go their way, um, but they're clearly disappointed. State media, even using terms such as pathetic clown and referring to Canada, uh, their view, and I think they sincerely believe this, is that we are seen as a lackey of the United States and simply following U.S. orders. So where does that leave Canada then? Like, we've always been in a tight spot between the United States and China on this thing. Can we expect more potential repercussions from China now? It's possible. There are um, Chinese generally tend to dish out their punishment over time. In other words, you're not, I didn't expect sort of immediate uh, reaction in terms of, of economic sanctions or trade impact. Uh, the, this may come. And, of course, is the other thing that... The deals that don't happen, or you don't see occur, uh, you may not be aware of. So if there's, say, a Canadian company is negotiating a large contract, contract doesn't get approved, the state enterprise uh, uses another supplier, 
Um, that may not be made public, uh, or at least it won't be known, but there will be a cost. I mean, the relationship trade was down last year. Uh, it will certainly be down this year. COVID-19 alone would do that. Uh, on the other hand, Chinese have to be a bit careful. We are a principal supplier of food supplies globally. They've got a big fight going with Australia right now. They've got a, a far more significant one going with the United States. So there are some breaks on what the Chinese will do. And as well, well the pressure they've already applied, uh, rest unwarranted of two innocent Canadians, the partial, almost total halting of canola exports, um, blocks on beef and pork, which were put in place for a long time, they, those didn't achieve what they wanted. And they they may not believe that our they senior party people may not believe that our court system is indeed outside of political control. Um, but what they've done already doesn't hasn't worked. So that will also, I think, serve as a partial break. But I would be surprised if there's not some if there are not some economic uh, repercussions, even if again if it's in the deals that just don't happen that would have otherwise taken place. And this is the second largest economy, about to be the largest perhaps in the course of the next decade. So this is meaningful for us. We're not talking about a small economy or a small country here. But you raise a good point, though, about at this current moment in time, China's standing in the world is not what it was, say, a year ago or two years ago. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly affected how many countries uh, view China and even potentially do business with China, has it not? Absolutely. And, And this sort of soft power dimension of China, which has been increasing over the years, has been severely damaged. In Canada, the last Angus Reid poll said 14% of Canadians had a favorable view of China. That's pretty small. And this is generally the same in the United States, in Western Europe, however, and certainly in Japan and India. However, I would note China still ranks more popular than the United States in much of the third world. And so many countries, Latin America, um, Asia, uh, Africa, Eastern Europe even, uh, China has a very positive um, image. And that is a bit surprising. It's certainly not the case in North America. But as you touched on, though, can China really afford to escalate things even with Canada at this point? They have their hands full right now. And they're, of course, facing a slowing economy. Uh, They are the world's largest trading nation. They're far more export dependent than the United States, less so than us, but more export dependent than the United States. So... um, straining trade ties and pressing their trade partners, uh, it has its downside. They have 10% of their land is arable. They are always hovering at the point of not having food self-sufficiency. And with the world's largest middle class, they've got hundreds of millions of people who want to eat better, eat better food, food they trust, etc. So there's, uh, they are torn between tough decisions as well. And um, hitting on their trade partners uh, that have supply some crucial food supplies uh, has its downsides for them as well. We are also a significant taker of, of Chinese exports. Uh, we run a trade deficit of about three to one. Uh, that, that matters for Chinese factories and for Chinese workers. So as for us, it's a complex formula. But right now they're going to be in the they are in the very unhappy mode and they're mudslinging. But for Canada then as well, I mean, up until now, there has been this balancing act the government's been trying to do. But given the situation now, and is it better for Canada to just say, you know what, we're leaving this entirely up to the courts. We're not going to say anything about this. I think that's most likely to be the, the, the way going forward. There is a provision in the Extradition Act which allows the political minister, the minister of justice, to simply bring uh, proceedings to a halt at any time. Um, that's within his power, presumably with approval of cabinet and the prime minister. Uh, the Chinese know that, and it's one of the reasons, I think, why the pressure is high. Mm-hmm. They know that there is an out for them, should the Minister of Justice doing that, do that now. But I think the political cost would be considerable. Um, the Conservative Party leadership race on right now, China is the dominant foreign policy issue. Again, that unpopularity of China within Canada right now, it's hard to imagine circumstances where uh, the Minister of Justice would exercise that decision-making power. At the end of the day, at the end of this whole process, and they were probably talking months, maybe years now, the Minister of Justice uh, cannot escape. He has to, or she, he now, of course, has to approve the extradition. Uh, and so there is an act by a cabinet minister at the end of the play. But to intervene now 
uh, while the proceedings are still underway, while legal, uh, would be very controversial, to say the least. Well, Professor, thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Abuse of residents, falsifying of medical documents, COVID-19 patients not being properly isolated, new workers who were not trained, and a blatant disregard or lack of knowledge of how to wear personal protective equipment and how to execute infection control measures. Horrifying, right? That's Global News journalist Mercedes Stevenson. Those are just some of the conditions that were reported in Ontario care homes by the Canadian military. The details of that report are horrifying, yes, and Seniors advocates say they've been trying to draw attention to these issues for years. So what is the alternative then to the long-term care home? Well, what about something called co-housing? Well, Kitty Elton is a co-housing advocate who lives in a co-housing community. Uh, she's the founding, she's involved in the founding of a new one on Vancouver Island as well. We wanted to learn more about this. So Kitty joins us now. Hi, Kitty. Hello. Tell me about this. What is co-housing? Well, uh, it is um, an intentional way of creating community that you want to live in uh, for um, yourselves. And it, it works through all um, age groups, but uh, with the attention that you're giving to seniors or elders, it's particularly good uh, in that area because it allows um, people to, as they age to stay in place longer in um, a community that is very supportive and active around them. And so they stay engaged and they're in usually um, more compact homes, but still complete homes. And one of the tricks of the whole business is that um, when you go into a co-housing community, if you happen to go in at the development stage, um, you are doing it for yourself. So there's not a developer that you have to have a create a, right. a profit for you're doing what you want for yourselves so um when a, a lot of this is following where the money goes right so if right. you're creating it for yourselves you're answerable to yourselves if it's a for-profit home of some kind the you know the you have to make a profit for them even if you're a government uh, run place you, it's still um, a oh, facility that has someone else it has to answer to besides its resident. Because this so, sounds so like basic, what you're talking about, right? And is it, it not? It is. Basic, it, is yeah. it is. You're talking about keeping people engaged and enjoying their life and active. Why haven't we done this before? Well, I think in in large part it's because we have um, people tend to cling on to the lifestyle that they've built for themselves and no wonder you know you you work all your life and you create a family or you create a home and you want to stay there nobody wants to go into the kind of care that you just described we all want to remain independent and active and all those sorts of things but because we want to do that and because the other part looks so horrible to us we tend to cling to what we have and till long past the time when we can actually take care of it or take care of ourselves or maybe we don't have that discussion enough about what are we going to do when we can't be in this house anymore that's right it's frightening you don't want to think about it no i want to i want to do this and i want to keep keep with what i've got um but we don't usually have you know those kinds of choices right. not nobody's going to choose to dwindle away in isolation no um, but the, but we tend to hang on to our independence kitty um, where can where can people find out more information about this um i'd say probably the best place to go would be canadian co-housing network online and it shows it t- talks about co-housing there and it also shows the communities that exist or are in development uh, or under construction. It has a listing there of homes that are um, for sale. Mm-hmm. So we, co-housing generally uses uh, the strata uh, law um, opportunity mm-hmm. so that each, uh, um, most of the time, each household owns their own you know, right. home, their own titled home. Uh, but it's within a community where you know everyone. Uh, we generally work by consensus so there isn't that normal strata. Um, right. it's, sometimes there can be antagonisms for who's got control 
well, everybody's got control. Everybody's on council. Everybody has a say. That's so different. Uh, Kitty, I like it. We'll talk more about it. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. So it's been a couple of months now since family court was put on pause, along with licensing for new drivers through ICBC. And listen, it was hard enough to get a road test book before that. I mean, it was a couple of months of waiting time. And now that's just backing up more and more. So when might we see those kinds of crucial services uh, resuming in this province? Who better to ask than the man in charge? BC Attorney General David Eby joins us now. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start with the family court issue. When might we see something resuming there? Well, for family court, criminal court, uh, civil court, uh, the courts have all been open, but only for the most urgent applications. So uh, the hearings have been taking place by teleconference, uh, in some cases by video conference in the Court of Appeal. Uh, And so uh, what we're seeing is a date from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and the Chief Judge of the Provincial Court that a significant number of courtrooms will be reactivated coming June 8th um, for uh, more, uh, they're urgent to whoever uh, the matter is, but uh, for for less urgent matters. Mm -hmm. Are you worried about the backlog, though? Uh, Hugely worried. Uh, As uh, the Chief Justices are and the Chief Judge, uh, we're all working together on a number of initiatives to uh, try to minimize the backlog and get as many matters heard right now as possible. Uh, and also to be able to uh, be more efficient uh, post-pandemic with things like video conferencing, online hearings, and so on, because we expect social distancing requirements to continue well into the future. So in provincial court, people might not know, but in our busiest provincial courts, literally uh, thousands of people will pass through uh, in any given day for traffic court, family court, criminal hearings, and so on. And we just, you can't do it with social distancing. So uh, we're needing to find technological workarounds in buildings that uh, are quite old. They don't have bandwidth uh, with a system that was set up for face-to-face hearings and paper-based uh, evidence that people pass around. Um, it's a lot of work, and, and it's been happening since day one. So when might we hear more on that? Uh, well, it's uh, it's a steady rollout. So the most recent announcement from the courts was the reactivation of a number of courtrooms uh, that where we're able to do social distancing and that kind of thing by uh, June 8th for matters that are scheduled for after that date. Uh, and there's also been a number of initiatives that have already rolled out. So the Court of Appeal will be back to where they were pre-COVID by the end of July, uh, which is very heartening because they rolled out um, some video conferencing. They're a very different operation, though, than Supreme Court and Provincial Court, where you have witnesses and juries and all that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, we've got some distance to go in those other courts. Uh, and uh, there'll be more, especially in relation to... Um, family court. We have a pilot project that was in Victoria before the pandemic that used a lot of mediation to try to keep things out of court, and they were having great success with that. So we'll be rolling that out across the province at an accelerated rate so that people can try to deal with their matters before they go to court, and we can take some of the burden off the court. It's just one example. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about the ICBC road test here, because not not a day goes by where somebody doesn't email me with this particular question. It is a hot topic. What about those ICBC road tests? When are they going to resume? Yeah, there's there's huge urgency on this as well. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who need their driver's license in order to earn a living, whether it's a commercial driver's license or even uh, just a class five normal license that you need to, to do food delivery or something like that because you lost your other job. So uh, there's a huge amount of pressure uh, and we understand it and we want to get it done, but we also want to do it safely. Um, we did unfortunately have uh, an exposure of a driver examiner to COVID in the in the earlier period while driver testing was still happening and, and we don't want that to happen. So uh, what we're doing is uh, and what ICBC is doing is they're working with WorkSafe BC on uh, protocols around personal protective equipment for examiners and for students uh, so that uh, both are protected. Um, some people have suggested, you know, you can kind of maybe you could have this student driving in the vehicle in front and do a follow vehicle uh, and do the test that way, the way motorcycle yeah. uh, testing is done. But motorcycle testing relies on two examiners in the follow vehicle, one to drive the vehicle and pay attention to surroundings and one to actually watch the driver in front. So you still have two uh, examiners in close proximity. Um, And also (laughs) one of the things that I found out that it was a bit disconcerting, but it's reality for driver examiners is uh, they they physically need to be in the vehicle within reach of the steering wheel because they have to be able to reach over and take control of the vehicle for someone who's not quite ready for public safety. 
Okay, so there's going to be a huge backlog with that as well. I mean, it was hard to get a test beforehand. How are you going to deal with that? Yeah, there's going to be a significant backlog. So our hope is that, first of all, um, our expectation is that um, ICBC will reach protocols with WorkSafeBC to ensure that everyone will be safe doing it. Then we have to ensure that there's enough personal protective equipment to be able to do it. In Alberta, they do face shields and 95 masks, a suit and a plastic cover for the seat for the examiner. Um, so we need to ensure that we have the adequate supplies to, to deliver that. And that's the big question mark right now. The good news is knowledge testing uh, across the province is back to normal this week. So for everyone that needs to do knowledge testing for their L or to extend their N or their motorcycle uh, learner's permit or they're coming from another jurisdiction, uh, that's all back up and active this week. Right. But like I said, though, there's still a huge backlog. Lots of people needing that license. Will there be more tests made available, like longer hours, anything like that that's under consideration? Absolutely. So there's a there's a uh, uh, active work monitoring the size of the backlog and the volume that ICBC is going to need, need to be able to pass through. There will be a backlog for a bit. I won't uh, pretend that we're going to be back up at full strength right away. Um, but there is an expectation on the part of ICBC uh, that they will have to roll out additional resources to work down the backlog once we have the personal protective equipment and the systems in place to protect everyone while they're doing their exams. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about that. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. That is BC Attorney General David Eby. We had a bunch of questions about the court system wrapping back up, as you heard him say, and also about ICBC road tests. They're also getting to the point where they'll be able to start doing those again with the personal protective equipment, just waiting on the rules from WorkSafe BC. Uh, But again, huge backlog on that. You already had to wait a couple of months to get a road test appointment before all of this happened. Uh, So we'll see. We'll keep keep tabs on that one because that's an important one too. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to make that Carson Arthur's theme song because it is just so great. Well, if you're a glass half full person, I think I am. uh, One of the good things that what we've all gone through in the last couple of months has been the impact on our gardens. People's yards are looking pretty good, but there's, you know, problems too. You need some help with some things. That's why we have called in one of our favorite people on the show. He is our go-to gardening person. And of course, you might know him from HGTV. It is outdoor design and lifestyle expert, Carson Arthur. Hi, Carson. Hello, I'm still singing Homegrown Tomatoes in my head right now. <laughs> That's for you. We'll do that every time you come on the show I, now, okay? Seriously, I love that song. It follows me around, but I'm good with it. Okay, good. We're going to remember that. Now, I got a ton of emails, so we're going to get into this, okay? Okay. I'm going to start. By the way, people can call in. If you've got a gardening question for Carson, you can call our open line, 604-280-9898. Now, our very own Nikki Reitmeyer, who works on the show, has the very first question, and she <laughs> wants to know, what do we do about the white flies on our office plants that we have right well part of the problem is the flies aren't just on the plant they're also in the soil so when we, often when we treat the plant we don't treat the soil and then they come back up and we think that we're not being effective so the easiest thing is honestly insecticidal soap which is just dishwasher uh dishwasher soap and or sorry i should say dish soap and water so i like to use one and a half tablespoons of you know, plain old dish soap, don't use antibacterial, just plain, 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 and a liter of water and off you go. Just make sure you spray the soil as well as the plants. Okay, excellent advice. Now, I'm going to go to my emails here. I've got John, who said, we've had four blueberry bushes, two each of two varieties, in our yard for the past five years, and they're now showing signs of pest problems. The leaves on many branches have been removed, and those stalks appear to have a different color. Some of the leaves have a mottled look with a kind of rusty red-orange spot. They don't have snails. They said, we do have snails, but she, they said we don't see them on the plants very often. Do you know what that could be? Mm, it sounds like bunnies. Bunnies love blueberries. Believe it or not, they will strip the leaves off one at a time, just a dainty little snack, and they'll just kind of nibble their way around. Uh, There are a couple of great options that you can use. Um, One of my personal favorites is actually a product called Bobex, which is a Canadian product. It's spelled B-O-B-B-E-X, and it will deter rabbits. Um, That's probably going to be your easiest solution. They will also deter things like chipmunks and squirrels if, for whatever reason, it happens to be rodents nibbling on your blueberry bushes. Okay, excellent. Uh, Darren emailed me to say, can you recommend a natural applicant or spray that would fight an insect attack on newly sprouted green bean plants? Mm, That's really tough because there's a lot of things that love green beans, beetles, worms, snails, slugs. There's tons of stuff. The good news is 
um, they usually only go after the seedling leaves. So those are the two little leaves that just come out first. And then once the green bean starts going, they kind of ignore it. So that's a normal situation. I personally wouldn't be too worried about it at this point. Um, what you can do is maybe a little deterrent, like that product I said, Bobex. Uh, I will also use something called diatomaceous soil or sharp soil. It's made of ground seashells. Um, really? And it's, yeah, it's readily available and it works in a bunch of different ways, but it's really good for uh, beetles, beetles and bugs that have exoskeletons. Because what happens is when they walk over the top of it, it naturally dries them out. So it desiccates them. So they just really, oh. they can't keep eating. But honestly, don't worry about it. As more leaves develop on the bean shoot itself, the bugs will stop chewing them. See, this is why we have you on. I learn something every okay. single time we have you on. Uh, we're also taking open calls here, 604-280-9898. We've got Christina on the line from Aldergrove. Hi, Christina. Hi, how's it going? Good, thank you. I understand you have ant problems. I do. They keep eating my radishes and my beets and my carrots. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's... Um, so you heard of the little part about the diatomaceous powder. Yeah. I would personally go that route, just do a nice dusting right on the vegetables. Look for when you're purchasing your diatomaceous soil, look for food grade. Uh, that means it's perfectly safe for you as a human to consume, so you can put it on vegetables directly. That will stop the ants dead in their tracks. Oh, no pun dinner. intended. Okay. <laughs> Give it a shot. Let us know how it goes, Christina. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. If you've got a question for Carson, you can give us a call, 604-280-9898. What is your gardening question that you have there? I've got so, I had so many emails because I plugged this earlier too. Uh, what about a plumeria? Mary wrote me to say, I've had a plumeria for about five years and it has never bloomed. Any suggestions, she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, often increasing the light level will encourage it to bloom. Although I have a good friend um, who's part of the Cullen family who insists that methane gas actually encourages plumeria to bloom. So what he does, and this is so random, he will, yeah, I know, I know, it sounds terrible. It you're not where I'm going with this. I know where you're uh, going with this. <laughs> he will take uh, an apple core and throw it into a paper bag put the plumeria in the paper bag and leave it in the paper bag for three days. And that actual, the process of the apple core breaking down naturally releases enough methane gas to get the plumeria to start ready to bloom. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. We have another call as well. We've got Mike on the line. Hi, Mike. Hey, Sammy. Um, I've got a clover problem. I uh, have a English style garden, lots of perennials that come up every year. And uh, one section of the garden just started with a couple of little patches of clover. And of course, if you let it flower, it gets to a point where you touch it, the seeds spread everywhere. I now just yeah. have the, 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 the ground blanket. I started trying to dig it out with a pitchfork yesterday and I got frustrated. Ooh. It was just so much work. Is there a way okay. to, to treat the soil somehow to, to deal with that? Yeah, there's a couple of options. Now, are there still plants in that area that you want to preserve? Yeah, yeah, we got lots okay. of uh, echinacea and bee balm and all sorts of great stuff. Okay, because there's a if if it was in say your lawn or some of the other spots that maybe you wanted to do a mass exodus, there's a product called Adios, which is the only bio. Um, grade herbicide, which is selective, which means it goes after the broadleaf, which works amazing on clover, but it will also kill off your perennials. So you don't want to use that. Uh, instead, I like to use the lasagna gardening technique. So literally bury the clover, like trim, use a string trimmer or whatever, cut it as close to the ground as possible, put seven layers of newspaper on the offending areas. Obviously, you're going to go around the plants that you want to save and create a collar around those, and then bury the newspaper in mulch. What happens is the newspaper, through the process of breaking down, it's actually going to block the clover from getting any sunlight. So you won't see the newspaper. You're going to have nice mulch on top of it, but it's going to smother and kill off the clover. Your existing perennials will be fine. You won't even notice a difference. And in six months, you're off to the races. You can start planting again because the clover will be gone. Cool. All right. Thank you for that, Mike. Appreciate the phone call. I want to quickly get to uh, Marianne, who's also called in with a question. Hi, Marianne. Oh, hi. What's your question? Uh, my question is I, my crabgrass has come back in my lawn, and I wanted to know how I can get rid of it. Okay. Carson? Right. What have you used in the past? I dug it out. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, digging out crabgrass is really tough because, as you know, those rhizomatic roots, the roots that are going horizontally, anytime you don't get any of those little pieces – two more shoots of crabgrass will come out. 
Um, what I tend to do with crabgrass is, as you said, I, I keep ripping it out, just keep staying on top of it, keep pulling it out. There is not a magic bullet for crabgrass because um, the way it gets into the lawn, anything that will kill the grab, crabgrass is also going to kill the grass itself. Right. One thing you can do, though, is increase the health and structure of your lawn without the crabgrass. So by top dressing it with fescue, F-E-S-C-U-E, fescue-based grass seeds, especially deep-rooted ones, they tend to be healthier and stronger and do better in our climate. And when they're healthy, they choke out the crabgrass. Okay. Well, thanks, Marianne, for the phone call. Appreciate that. Okay. Thank you very much. Carson, what is your email again? So uh, there's so many people I didn't get to again, as always. What's your email for people? I'm info at CarsonArthur.com. All right. They're going to contact you. You know that. I know, I know. Just give me patience because I'm on my craftsman <laughs> tour right now, flying across the country, doing these interviews all around Canada, talking about the new craftsman outdoor tools. All right. Well, we'll have you back for sure. Carson, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Carson Arthur, HETV outdoor design and lifestyle expert, our favorite go-to person for gardening question. Info at CarsonArthur.com. You can direct your gardening questions to him. And yes, he will get back to you on that.